Well, good morning and welcome to Christ Church. I am Pete Stearns and I am one of our pastors here. And we are in the middle of, as you have seen, a series focused on the Apostles' Creed. Well, if you haven't been following along with us or you are, in fact, new to Christianity altogether, the Apostles' Creed, simply put, is a statement of belief that is shared amongst this congregation, but also among congregations across the globe and, in fact, throughout the course of Christian history. It is a declaration of what we believe to be the core tenets of the faith which we follow. It is a guideline for how we might engage in the Christian life. This week, we dive into the stanza that states, We believe in the holy Christian church. As I read this, I pause for a moment because this feels like a bit of a departure from the statements we've been making over the past few weeks. You see, as we've been studying this creed, we have, for the most part, been pointing our belief to God the Father who created this earth, to Jesus Christ, His Son, who walked among us, performed miracles, died on the cross, and was risen from the tomb for the salvation of our sins, and the Holy Spirit who dwells within us. We feel confident in pointing to the virtues and characteristics of our God as the foundation of our belief, but when suddenly we are asked to just as enthusiastically declare our belief in an organization made up of fallen individuals, it feels slightly uncomfortable. We don't have to think very hard to recognize some of the atrocities done at the hands of the church. Things like the Crusades come to mind, where European Christians conquered the globe in the name of Jesus Christ. The colonization of the continent of Africa, in which the Roman Catholic Church felt that it was their religious right, if not their actual responsibility, to bring their systems of government and civilization upon indigenous people, suppressing their culture, their way of life, leading to great suffering and slavery. We think about the Ku Klux Klan, an extremist hate group that in many cases was built upon the shoulders of Christian leaders, elders, and pastors. And you see, it's in this recognition of the somewhat messy history of the church that we pause slightly when we are asked to profess our faith in the body of believers with the same enthusiasm as we point to the character of our God. What is my hope that through our conversation today, we will begin to ease some of those concerns so that we might enter together, declaring confident, confidently our belief in the holy Christian church. Let us turn to Ephesians chapter 4, verses 11 through 16. Paul is writing to the church of Ephesus, instructing them on how they should organize the body of believers. 
He is giving them guidelines for what it means to be a church. Uh, and he has done so fairly regularly throughout his letters to the churches across the globe. But here in verse four, we get a un- or in chapter four, we get a unique perspective uh, that is painted for Paul on how we might function together as the holy Christian church. So Christ Himself gave the church, the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the pastors, and teachers to equip his people for works of service so that the body of Christ may be built up until we all reach unity in the faith and in the knowledge of the Son of God and become mature, attaining to the whole measure of the fullness of Christ. Then we will no longer be infants tossed back and forth by the waves and blown here and there by every wind of teaching And by the cunning and craftiness of people in their deceitful scheming, instead, speaking the truth in love, we will grow to become in every respect the mature body of him who is the head, that is Christ. From him, the whole body, joined and held together by every supporting ligament, grows and builds itself up in love as each part does its work. You see, this passage gives us a few context clues for why we can understand the church as holy. Paul recognizes the church as holy not because of the works of the apostles and the prophets and the teachers and the missionaries, but instead, Paul attributes the holiness of the church to the headship of Christ Jesus. He recognizes that the church is a holy entity not because of the virtues of any individual, not because of the good works done by a group of people, but instead because they were founded by Jesus Christ our Lord, who is in fact perfect, pure, and holy. You see, we recognize that Jesus Christ did not need us, the church, to complete his good work. He could have redeemed all of creation in his time here on earth, but instead chose to invite us into personal relationship with him as the bride of Christ so that we, as a body of believers might become transformative agents in this world so that we might point to our headship in Christ Jesus. And so in the Apostles' Creed, when we claim with confidence that we believe that the church is holy, we do so not on the merit of any organization, but rather because of the character of our Christ. You see, the second interesting component of this passage is a recognition of the diversity of believers. And this is not an obscure thought or concept. Instead, this is a sentiment that is reiterated over and over and over throughout the New Testament. You see, Paul recognizes that the diversity 
of believers actually draws us into unity. We recognize fairly regularly that each and every one of us has been gifted uniquely. We have been given different talents. We have been given different passions. We have been given different blessings, but we've also been given different worldviews and ideologies. We have been given different personalities that go about solving the issues and the crises of this world uniquely. Why? So that we might become reliant upon each other in a way that draws us together in unity. The beauty of the Christian church is that we are unified because of and not in spite of our diversity. You see, that second word in the stanza of the holy Christian church is oftentimes remembered by many of us as, in fact, being the holy Catholic church. And perhaps you're a little bit skeptical as to why we call it the holy Christian church here in our evangelical denomination. And we become convinced that we just changed it out of convenience. But the reality is, is that that one word was never meant to point to a specific organization. It was never meant to point to a specific denomination. In fact, when the creed was written, the word Catholic simply would have meant one or universal. When we claim that we believe in a holy Christian church, we are claiming that we believe in one church that is united by the headship of Christ. And it is within that one church that we become unified, not necessarily in behavior, not necessarily in culture, not necessarily in worldview, but unified in the knowledge and the trust of Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior. You see, Paul recognizes that one of the most attractive characteristics of the church is our unity in spite of our diversity. It's our ability to come together, to bring different talents, different gifts, different worldviews, different cultures to the table as we solve the issues and the challenges of our world. You see, because we are different, because we are uniquely equipped, each and every one of us also has a unique mission field so that the church might transform the world. Well, if the most attractive virtue of the church is in fact our unity, it seems to me that we are not doing very, a very good job of this here in the 21st century. It doesn't seem like a stretch to say that the evangelical church of the United States of America of our modern day is not known for its unity. In fact, I would guess that most people, both Christians and non-believers, would be quicker to point to the divisions in the church than they would point to this beautiful unity that is drawn together in Christ Jesus. 
You see, it seems to me that if there is an issue upon which we might have differences of opinion, the church has them. We stand on either side of the line when it comes to politics, social justice, race, gender, sexuality, baptism, classic or contemporary worship. And it's not necessarily problematic that we hold different ideologies and different understandings. It's the fact that in the midst of those differences, we respond not with healthy discourse, not with faithful conversation that seeks to draw us together, but instead with hand-wringing and finger-pointing, with hearts filled with anger, not humility. And you see, it is in this reality that the church's witness has lost its credibility. For if we, being united under one God, cannot peacefully engage in dialogue on how we might respond to the brokenness of this world, how can we convince others that our God is the way, the truth, and the life? Well, I will be transparent in recognizing that I hold some rather deep convictions when it comes to politics, social justice, and the way that I read my Scripture. And more often than not, my response to those that think differently than me is to point at them and say, you have got it all wrong. And you see, I can do so confidently because I've got a Bible and I've read it. And I know what it says. I'm in relationship with Jesus, so clearly I am right. And in fact, our disagreement is not a disagreement among two human beings, but rather it's a disagreement between God and others because I apparently am speaking as the voice of God. I am not interested necessarily in coming together, but I am interested in converting you to thinking the way that I think, to seeing the world the way that I see it. Well, Peter ends, identifies this as the greatest sin that faces the evangelical church in his book, The Sin of Certainty. I want to read to you two brief excerpts. And as I read this, I want you to think about your own way of engaging in the challenges that the world faces today and ask yourself if this sin is present anywhere in your hearts as it is in mine. No one just follows the Bible. We interpret it as people with a past and present and in community with others within certain traditions, but none of these are absolute. None of us rises above our place in the human drama and grasps God with pure clarity without our own baggage coming along for the ride. We all bring our broken and limited selves into how we think of God. Later on, he continues by saying, when we are held captive to our thinking, 
Moving to what is not known and uncertain is automatically seen as a fearful development. We think true faith is dependent on maintaining a particular knowledge set and keeping a firm grasp on a tightly woven network of non-negotiable beliefs, guarding each one vigilantly, making sure they all stay above the waterline no matter how hard the struggle, because if what we know sinks, our faith sinks right down with it. You see, I, and I imagine many others, have elevated our understanding of God, our reading of Scripture, as an idol in our life. We believe so firmly that we have rightly understood Scripture, that we have rightly understood the Spirit of God, that when we receive an opportunity to know Him differently, it is met with fear and resistance. Because the very thought that someone else might understand God differently than I do is a departure from what we believe is right and true. And to depart from what is right and true is indeed to depart from God. But that God is not the one true God. That is the God that we have made of our own mind, our own will, and our own understanding. You see, we are a church that is drawn together by the headship of Christ. But our certainty around understanding who God is and how to interpret His Spirit has fractured us into following many gods. And in doing so has left us with division in the church that has eroded our witness in this world. There is a golfer by the name of Kyle Berkshire and he's not necessarily known for his accomplishments on the tour, but instead he is known as the world champion longest driver. Kyle Berkshire has gotten very good at doing one thing, hitting a little white ball farther than any human being has today or at any point in human history. Kyle can drive the ball 492 yards. To put that in perspective, the very best of the best PGA golfers average in the 320s. He is hitting the ball nearly 170 yards farther than the greatest golfers the world has ever known. And I was recently watching an interview with him, and, and, and a famous PGA golfer was asking him how he had gotten so good. And Kyle thought about it for a moment, and he said, I recognize that every single part of my body, every piece of me contributed to how far I could hit the ball. And so he said, it became very important to me. I became dedicated to identifying those parts of my body that were holding me back from success. And so instead of just practicing my swing, instead of just trying to swing harder and harder, instead of toning the muscles 
that have become uh, common knowledge as impacting the distance of my swing, I went about seeking to identify every weakness in my body. And the way that he did that was that he picked a specific muscle each week and he would work that muscle to complete and utter exhaustion until it was shaking and weak. And then he would go to the driving range and he would hit. And he would log his results and his distances. And over the course of time, as he tested each muscle in his body, he went back and looked at his logs and found the specific muscle groups that, when exhausted, most negatively impacted the distance that he hit the ball. And then he set himself to strengthening that muscle so that his overall impact might be greater. Well, the same is true for us as we think about the impact of our witness in this world. We must look at our body, at our spirit, at our mind, and recognize those areas of weakness that are negatively impacting the way that we might transform the world as agents of our Lord Jesus Christ. I think oftentimes we have bought into the myth that our sin has circumstantial impact in our life. What I mean to say is that when I lie, it has a negative impact in a specific instance. It is hurtful because it is dishonest to the person I am lying to in that moment. When I steal, that is wrong because I am taking possessions from someone in that moment. When I commit sexual sin, it is wrong because it is a betrayal of a specific loved one. And in doing so, we actually minimize the sinister impact of sin in our life. You see, sin has sweeping effects in our ability to understand God. We recognize sin as a departure from who our God is. And if all sin in our body causes us to depart from God, then it impacts the way that we understand our scripture. It impacts the way that we discern his movement and his spirit and his will in our lives. And I think we need to have the same attitude as Kyle Berkshire to identify that sin in our life and seek to eliminate it so that our witness might become greater. So that as Ephesians 4 tells us, we might become focused in fullness of Christ Jesus, that we might become a better reflection of him, recognizing that when each and every one of us specifically keeps our aim on Christ Jesus and eradicates the sin from our life, we will inevitably be drawn closer together. Instead of trying to tug the other person towards us, we should try to tug ourselves towards God. You see, I believe that this is one of the solutions to the problem of the divisions that we find in our church. But I'm curious to look at how Jesus in his life and ministry, responded to this sin of certainty. 
And I want to open to John chapter 8, verses 2 through 11. Now, at this point in Jesus' ministry, Jesus has become a threat to the religious leaders of that day and age. And they are working hard to put stumbling blocks in his path so that they might accuse him, so that they might break his following away from him. And here they come up with a crafty solution. At dawn, he, Jesus, appeared again in the temple courts where all the people gathered around him, and he sat down to teach them. The teachers of the law and the Pharisees brought in a woman caught in adultery. They made her stand before the group and said to Jesus, Teacher, this woman was caught in the act of adultery. In the law of Moses, we are commanded to stone such women. You see, they're using this sin of certainty. We understand the law to say that this woman is deserving of death. Now, what do you say? They were using this question as a trap in order to have a basis for accusing him. But Jesus bent down and started to write on the ground with his finger. When they kept on questioning him, he straightened up and said to them, let any one of you who is without sin be the first to throw a stone at her. Again, he stooped down and wrote on the ground. At this, those who heard began to go away. One at a time, the older ones first, until only Jesus was left with the woman. Jesus straightened up and asked her, Woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? No one, sir, she said. Then neither do I condemn you, Jesus declared. Go and leave your life of sin. You see, in the face of certainty, of interpreting the law, the Pharisees believed that this woman was worthy of death. But Jesus in this passage, does not seem all too concerned with her sin. But instead, he looks at a crowd of people that are shaking their fists that are also broken, who also fall short of the glory of God, who are also deserving of death. And he urges them to be more concerned about the weaknesses in their own body rather than the weaknesses in the bodies of others. He asked them to drop the stone, not because he is okay with the sin that this woman has committed, but instead to drop the stone because he recognizes that the greatest impact is to examine inwardly the brokenness in our lives and to trust that others who also have their minds and their sights set on Jesus Christ as the head of the church are doing the same. You see, I imagine if Jesus were with us today in the midst of our heated arguments around politics, social justice, war, that he would turn to us and tell us to set down our stones and instead give up 
the fruitless fight to condemn and convince others and instead seek to become more like him. For it is in becoming more like Christ that we restore the unity of our church and the credibility of our witness in this world. Now I recognize the elephant in the room. The very valid question is to say, as Christians then, is there no place for us to point out and hold accountable other believers in their sinful behaviors? Is there never a time to stand and defend the values of our faith? And in response to this question, I would draw us back into Ephesians chapter 4, looking again at verses 15 through 16, because Paul addresses this very specific issue. He addresses this idea of Christians within the church claiming the headship of Christ, but actually calling them to perverted understandings of what it means to live out a life of faith. And so in response, he says, instead, speak the truth of love. Speak the truth in love, sorry. And we will grow to become in every respect the mature body of him who is the head, that is Christ. From him, the whole body, joined and held together by every supporting ligament, grows and builds itself up in love as each part does its work. You see, Jesus, with this woman that is caught in adultery, does not give her a free pass. He calls out her sin, but he does so in love, in relationship with her. He does so without condemnation and hate in his heart. He does so with a desire to actually see her experience life in its fullest that is found in the headship of Christ Jesus. And so we as believers will find ourselves in circumstances in which it is beneficial for us in love to challenge the actions, the behaviors, and the thoughts of beloved Christ followers. But you see, this is not as easy as saying that I share this in love before spewing vitriol, hate, and anger upon someone. Instead, it is to truly grasp what it means to set down our stone and embrace the virtue of love, which we hear called out in 1 Corinthians as identified by its patience, its kindness, the fact that it does not envy and it does not boast, it is not proud, it does not dishonor. It's never self-seeking. It's not easily angered. It keeps no record of wrongs. Love does not delight in evil, but rejoices with the truth. And it is always seeking to protect. It is always seeking to trust our brother and sister in Christ. It is always hopeful for the outcome. And it is always persevering regardless of the response. You see, when we can embrace this kind of love, when we can address the sin in our lives, then once again, we will be drawn together as the holy Christian church, unified 
in our pursuit of the headship of Christ, but diverse in the way that we engage with the world around us, uniquely equipped to have a significant impact on this world because of and not in spite of our diversity of thinking, behavior, ability, talent, and passion. If we want to restore our understanding of our claim of belief in the Holy Christian Church, then it begins by doing the hard work of eliminating the sin and the weakness in our body that negatively impacts our credibility. And it continues by reaching out in love to the brothers and sisters of Christ that surround us in a way that encourages them, in a way that seeks to protect them and allow them to have hope. Let us pray together. Heavenly Father, Lord, we thank you that you, in your humility, invited us, the church, to be your bride. Lord, we humbly admit today that we have fallen short of your glory and of your holiness. Lord, we admit that we have elevated ourselves and our thinking to be gods in this world, and in doing so, we have fractured your beautiful and holy church. Lord, today we commit to examine the sin in our lives that mars our relationship with you and in turn mars our relationship with others so that we might restore our witness in this world. And we might step forward confidently in loving accountability of those around us. We pray this in your name. Amen.